It's actually a real joy for me to come and share God's word with you this morning, especially with my family here at BCC. Uh, just like to say a welcome to people watching online. I was told to look at the camera and give them a welcome. So hi. <laughs> welcome. Um, so today, church, we're going to be looking at an astounding miracle, which we have already just read through, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And ju just a quick reminder that you can uh, follow this message through if you've got the Version app. You can go into there, uh, just, just click on events. You'll find BCC uh, Church right there, and you can follow the message through. Um, but before we get into it, uh, let's, just, let's just pray uh, and bless the word this morning. Father, we just thank you for this season that we're in where we're talking about the miracles of Jesus. And Lord, it's our prayer that as we go through this season, that Lord, you just break out in this place and in this house in miracles, Father. So Lord, we just pray that as we go through your word, that you would just speak to us, encourage us, lift us up in you, in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So just before I begin, I'd just like to tell you a story about when I decided to chop some trees down in my garden. Now, I'm going back about 10, 10 years, um, and we lived in Craigley Heath, Old Hill, Craigley Heath. Um, and at the bottom of the garden, there's these three tall conifer trees, and they were, they were keeping all the light out of our garden. So me and Debbie, my wife, we decided that we're going to cut these down. Now, when I say me and Debbie decided that we are going to cut these down, you know, guys, that I mean I am going to cut these trees down. <laughs> it's called the royal we, as we all know. So, so, I, so I researched on YouTube how to cut trees down, because YouTube's just great for anything like that, isn't it? So I went out to, to, to B&Q, and I, other retail stores are available, and bought myself a, a wood cutting saw and an axe, which felt amazing to just hold and swing. Um, and I thought, right, my next door neighbor, Ike, he would be well up for helping me cut these trees down. So I thought, right, what I'm gonna do, and I did this, I got my axe, knocked on his front door, and I, I discovered another way to a man's heart, is get an axe, knock on his front door and say, hi Ike, would you like to cut some trees down? And he was just so well up for it. So over the course of the next week, we, we got to work. And I'd even come home from work at Ike's already down the bottom of my garden with the axe having a go at these trees. So, so, so I learned that I need, I need to, to cut an angle in the tree and then, and then a straight line, get that angle in the direction that we, we need this tree to fall. So the first tree, that's fine. That was cut it in. Now, just to make a point here, our garden was about... 17 meters long but the problem was it was only about three to four meters wide so I had to kind of get it right so the first tree came down lovely and it was so rewarding and satisfying crashed right in the garden second tree we cut it fell down just beautiful the problem with the third tree was that it was right in the corner of the garden at the back but it's the angle of its natural fall was kind of over towards our other next door neighbor's garden. Now our next door neighbor had a really nice garden. And in the middle, so at the top of their garden, there was this lovely lawned area and you'd walk through this beautiful wooden arch that had flowers and roses weaving between it into another seating area. But I thought, that's okay, because I've researched how to get the angle in this tree so it all 
fall into my garden, so it's not a problem. So I set things up, and I, had, I put, the, put the cut in. I had a big rope tied around the tree, so I would just, just pull it just to hear the crack. And I got Ike, the other guy who's helping me, in his garden. He's over here with a, another rope around the tree. So I would pull it, and then he would pull it towards his garden. And that weight distribution we kind of worked out would would steer it right down our garden. So the moment the moment came, I said, Deb, bring the kids out because we're, we're going to watch this. And Ike's wife, they came out to watch this great fall and thought, oh, this, is, this is brilliant. So I'm there with the rope. I'm just pulled, crack. And it starts to tip and I'm like, Ike, pull, pull. And he's looking at me, he's pulling, but it's just not happening. And, I can, and from that moment, it just went in complete slow motion. And Ike staring at me with this like, look on his face like, it's not working. And everybody just watches this tree fall right over into next door's neighbor's garden, straight through their wooden arch and just crashed and literally filled their whole garden almost. And it was just a complete disaster. This was a setup that went completely wrong. And of course, over the next few days, I was in their garden rebuilding wooden arches and everything. <laughs> But praise the Lord, they were so gracious and it was, it was good. But, but I, I share that story to say that when Jesus sets things up, it just doesn't go wrong. And when I, whenever I have read and read the story of Lazarus, I've always felt that there's a sense here that Jesus is setting things up in a particular way that he wants them to play out. It's the way that he just waits for two days and then he waits till he hears that Lazarus is dead and then he goes to, to, to Bethany to, to, to perform this miracle. There's something slightly different about this miracle to me than, some of, than most of the others. This one seems planned. This one seems calculated and almost with a bigger mission in mind. So just to help us understand what's going on, I think it'd be really helpful to just explain exactly where we are in the, in the timeline of Jesus' ministry, and then just quickly summarize chapter 10 to help us set the scene as we walk with Jesus to Lazarus. So at the end of chapter 11, people, we can see that people are traveling to Jerusalem to prepare for Passover. And so because they are doing that, we can, we can understand and we can be pretty clear that we are about a few weeks just before Passover. And as we know, that would also be a few weeks just before um, Jesus Christ's own death and uh, his own crucifixion. Uh, the only miracle that we're going to see after this point will be in the Garden of Gethsemane when uh, Peter chops the ear off the, so off the soldier and Jesus puts that ear back on. So, so we can be pretty sure that we're a few weeks away from his own death. So he's coming towards the end uh, of, of, his, um, of his miracles and his ministry. Whilst researching uh, this miracle, I discovered that the Jewish rabbis, they believed that there were two categories of miracles. There were normal miracles, which we'll take, won't we, church? Normal miracles will be just fine, whatever they are. But also, there were four miracles that particularly the Messiah and only he could perform. And anyone doing those miracles were claiming to be the Messiah. And these were known 
as the messianic miracles. Just by way of explanation, the word Messiah, if that's something that you're not familiar with, it means the anointed one, and he's the one that Israel was waiting for. He was the one who would come as God incarnate to earth and bring God's kingdom on the earth through miracles and signs, and he would come to deliver Israel from oppression. So number four of these miracles, um, messianic miracle number one was the cleansing of a Jewish leper, especially through, the, through, through touch. Because as we all know, if anybody was to touch a leper, they would be considered to be cursed themselves. And isn't it interesting that whenever Jesus healed the leper, we always see that he would touch their hand and they would be made whole. This particular miracle took place early on in Jesus' ministry, as early as Mark 1, uh, verse 40, and also in Matthew 8. Yet they still didn't believe that this Jesus was the Messiah. Messianic miracle number two was the casting out of a dumb demon. I don't mean a demon that's stupid. I mean a, a demon that has caused somebody to be mute. And casting out of demons was not something that was unusual to, to rabbis, but the method that they would use would be this. They would get the name of the demon, and they would do that by getting the demon to say their name through the person, and with that information, that they could then exercise that demon out of the person. But of course, if that person's mute, this method falls flat and doesn't work anymore. But they did teach that when the Messiah came, he could cast out this type of demon and of course Jesus has done this and he did this in Matthew 12 22 and of course now they're going to believe Jesus is the Messiah of course not they still didn't believe that he was the Messiah messianic miracle number three the healing of a man born blind and this was the the healing that we actually looked at last week that Pastor Nick brought to us and this was in John chapter 9 because they believed that this sickness was a judgment from God for a sin that was committed in the womb, which, as Nick said last week, is like completely ridiculous. And because it was a judgment from God, then only God could heal it. And of course, as we saw from last week, Jesus himself healed that man born blind. And of course, they accepted him with open arms that he's the Messiah. No. Still, they rejected that this man is the Messiah. And that was chapter 9. So just, we'll come on to the fourth messianic miracle in a moment. But just to quickly summarize chapter 10, which is the next chapter, Jesus, it opens with Jesus talking to the Pharisees. And he's making lots of claims now that he is the Messiah, that he is God. He's saying things like this, I, I am the gate, and anyone who comes through me and enters through me will be saved. He's saying that I am the good shepherd and the sheep, they know my voice. He says, I and the, and the Father are one. And they're furious. They say, this man is demon-possessed. He's raving mad. Then as the chapter continues, we find Jesus. He's in the temple courts. And the Jews say to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, just tell us plainly. And Jesus said, I did tell you, and you can kind of hear his frustration. I did tell you, but you didn't believe. He says, the works I do in my Father's name, they testify about me. So he's referring to the very messianic miracles he's been doing. They tell you who I am. And it says that even now, 
even at this point, these Jews, Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But it says that Jesus escaped and he left almost like a man on the run. And it says that he left and went to the other side of the Jordan. So with Passover and his own death just weeks away, Jesus would show them one more miracle that would lead them surely in no doubt that this is the Messiah, that this is the Son of God. So we pick up the story of Lazarus in chapter 11. And what's the very first thing that Jesus does when he hears the news of Lazarus? And in verse 6, it tells us that when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. He stayed another two days. Can you imagine how Mary and Martha would have felt if they would have brought the news themselves and they would, they would have made this journey? Because we, we learn that the journey from where he was to Bethany was two days as well. So he stays two days. It's another two days to get to Lazarus. So Mary and Martha, they bring the news. Can you imagine that they're, they're there? They need him to come right now because it's, it's serious. So that they would have come up and said, like, Jesus, we need you to come. Come on. If we leave now, we'll get there in the next hour. We've booked the train tickets. Come on. And... He's just chilled. He's just staying where he is. I think they would have been really disappointed, really frustrated, angry almost at Jesus' response, as there seems just no logical reason to stay. And there's a definite sense that Jesus is setting things up in a way that's even bigger than just what this situation looks like. Have you ever wondered why Jesus waits for those two days? And this is the setup. And this leads us to the fourth messianic miracle. The Jews had another belief that when a person died, that their spirit remained in their body for three days. And then on the fourth day, the spirit would depart their body and go down to Shoal. And Shoal was a place that they believed that they would go to after they had died. And after this point, only God himself could raise them up through a miracle. Only the Messiah himself could raise them up through a miracle. So he knows that it's a two-day journey from where he needs to get to. So he, and he knows that he cannot get there until Lazarus has been dead for four days because that's going to be the miracle that will finally show them that he really is the Messiah. And that's why he waits. And throughout this story, Jesus is going to carry with him two missions. One is a big picture mission for the nation of Israel, where he will perform this miracle that only God can perform, which will be their last chance to finally accept that he's the one that they've been waiting for. And I just want to point out that it's actually after this miracle that Caiaphas and the religious leaders decide finally that this man has to die. The other, the other mission that he carries is a very personal mission for a family that he loves very much. And it's just beautiful. He carries a nation, but he walks with you. He is God who holds the earth in his hand, but he walks with just you. He is God who plans eternity out, but he walks with just you. Don't we just love Jesus? He's so wonderful. So it tells us in verse 3 that Mary and Martha sent word to Jesus. Lord, the one you love is sick. 
And in verse 4, when he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. And this brings me to my first main point this morning. Jesus is already working on your miracle. I just want to say that again to your church this morning, that Jesus is already working on your miracle. If you're watching online, I'll say this to you, that Jesus is already working on your miracle today. Even though he seems like he's waited two more days and he's far away and he's distant, Jesus is already starting to work on the miracle that we need. Actually, as soon as he hears the need, he was working on the miracle. The message from the sisters was this, Lord, the one that you love is sick. There is something powerful about knowing that you are loved by Jesus. It's because you are loved by him that your need gets his attention. It's because you are loved by him that your cry for help gets his attention. It's because you are loved by him and that he loves you that he's already working on your miracle. It's when you know that he loves you, you approach him with expectation. You approach him without fear. You come boldly before him because you know that, you love, that he loves you. So church, can I ask you a question this morning? Do you really know that you are loved by God? Can you say today with conviction, Lord, it's me, the one you love. Can I say, Lord, it's me, Jason, the one you love. Can you put your name right into that sentence? Lord, it's the one you love. Romans 5, 8 tells us actually that God went to great length to show us how much he loves us. It says, but God, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's interesting that at this point, when he first hears the news, Lazarus probably just needed a healing. But he, so even before Lazarus knew that he needed a miracle, Jesus was, Jesus was already working on his miracle. Isn't it good to know, church, that Jesus is already ahead of your situation today? So verse 4, when he said this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. And this was his own personal mission for this family that he loved. This was his own per personal mission for Lazarus. Jesus was already speaking life over Lazarus. He was already speaking life over this situation and he's already speaking life over your situation today. And again, even if, even if it feels like he's distant and far away, you can be sure today and know that he's speaking already life into your situation and over your situation. He goes on to say, no, it, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. And here he's looking at that big picture mission again for the nation so that they will see that through this miracle, the son will be glorified. Now, just to make a point here, I, I don't believe that we should read this as God gives us sickness so that he can be glorified through it. There was no glory in Lazarus' sickness. It killed Lazarus. Jesus was saying that this situation has provided an opportunity for God to perform a miracle that will glorify the Son. 
He didn't give a sickness so he could perform a miracle. He performed a miracle because a miracle was what was needed. And it's the miracle that would bring glory to God. So he waits two days. Then, knowing that Lazarus has already died, and at this point, he he would have been dead now for two days. So he says to his disciples in verse 7, let us go back to Judea. And I just love the reaction of the disciples to this. They're like, hang on, Lord. They were just trying to stone you back in Jerusalem, back in Judea. They were just trying to kill you. And you want to go back? I kind of never have a go at the disciples or think bad because I know that if I was there with one of the disciples and Jesus said, let's go back, I would be like, hang on, Lord, you want to go back? And I think we all kind of have a bit of empathy with what they're, what they're feeling and thinking. But there's a beautiful and lovely thought here that even if it kills him, he's coming for you. Even if it gets him crucified, he's coming for you. He's coming for you. And you might be sitting there thinking, who, me? Yeah, he's coming for you. And you're like, why? Because you're the one he loves. So he's coming for you. And this brings me to my second main point uh, this morning. What do you believe? What do you believe? You know, I, I'm a big fan. I don't know if anybody uh, is a fan also. I, I quite like the Indiana Jones movies. Um, is there any Indiana Jones people here? Oh, there's a few. No swinging from the uh, rafters and such. But anyway, I, and I like the, 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 the third movie. Um, it's called The Last Crusade. And in Indiana Jones, if you don't know, he's an adventurer searching for archaeological uh, stuff. Anyway, so... In this one, they're searching for the cup of Christ, as you do when you've got a bit of spare time. So, so they're after the cup of Christ. So there's Indiana Jones and his dad, who's played by Sean Connery, and they're, they're tracking where is the cup of Christ. And there's also this rogue group who are also after it, because they believe if they can find the cup... Uh, by the way, this is not a cup of coffee, it's actually water. Just in case you think I'm getting caffeine boosts. Bless the Lord. <laughs> um, okay, Indiana Jones. Um, yeah, so, so they're after the cup of Christ. So Indiana Jones and his dad, they get caught by this rogue organization and, and they finally find where the cup is. So they enter into this big cave and at the back of the cave is where the cup of Christ is. And to get to it, you're going to have to go through various traps and, they're gonna, if, you do, and if you get this wrong, you are finished. There's about three traps that they have to go through. So Indiana Jones and his dad are kind of hostage, and they watch one of the soldiers go before them. Uh, And surely enough, they just get to the first trap, and all you hear is like the swing of this sword. There's no children in here, isn't there? And this head just come rolling back out down the steps and just stops right next to them. And they say, right, Indiana, you're next. And he's like, oh, my word. So he's full of fear, and it's like, oh, but his dad, throughout the years, had researched this whole event, and he, he knew the steps to get through all these traps, and he'd wrote them down in this little book, which Indiana Jones had in his pocket, um, and he had to trust what his dad had said, and there's a moment here where Sean Connery grabs Indiana Jones and says, Indiana, it's time to ask yourself, what do you 
believe. And of course, he gets through, and the rest is fiction, actually. It's not history. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Yeah, it's just fiction. So, church, this morning, the question is, what do you believe? And I'm going to break this question down into three parts. First is, we're going to get asked, because Jesus now, he's about to leave where he is, and he's about to set off now to, to Bethany. And along this journey, these kind of questions are going to start popping up. So the first one will be what Jesus believed about death. And in turn, asking us, what do we believe about death itself? Second one's going to be, what do we believe about Jesus? And thirdly, what do we believe about the compassion that he has towards us? So the first one is, Jesus challenges our belief about death. What does he believe about death? And just before he leaves... Verse 11 explains that this is his conversation with the disciples. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. And his disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, then he'll get better. But Jesus had been speaking about his death, but his disciples just didn't get it again. So then he just told them plainly, no, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let's go to him. Jesus here in this bit of dialogue teaches us that he doesn't see death the way that we do. As believers, we don't taste death. We sleep. And the great thing for me about sleep, who enjoys their sleep here? All those hands have gone. So I love my sleep and I can sleep quite easily, which is a real blessing from the Lord. But the thing, that, the thing that I find great about sleep is that the moment you go to sleep, you don't, you don't experience the time lap. You, the moment you sleep, you're awake. Now, that's not always great, but let's say it's, remark, it's a remarkable thing that you don't experience that time. And it's a great comfort and confidence knowing that the moment we leave this body, we don't taste death, but we sleep. And he wakes us in a blink of an eye to new life in him. And it's a great comfort, isn't it? Knowing that our loved ones who've believed in him that have gone before us, they don't taste death. They just sleep. And in a blink of an eye, they are awoken to a new life in him. Even their body that's in the ground, no matter how long it's there for, they sleep. It doesn't taste death. They just sleep. And in a blink of an eye, they don't experience that time lap. In a blink of an eye, their body's caught up to meet him in the air. Thank you, Father. So what do we believe about him? On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. That's a surprise, isn't it? Jesus knew that by the time he got there, Lazarus was going to be dead for four days. Remember what the Jews believed about four days. Jesus had set this up from the moment he'd heard the news. He set this up from the very beginning, and it's all going to plan. And at this point, we learn that as Jesus arrived at Bethany and came to Bethany, that he stayed just outside the village, which was away from the crowd. And we learn that Bethany was just a two-mile journey from Jerusalem. So all the Jews, all the Pharisees, they'd come to the family, especially because they'd heard Jesus is probably on his way. So they'd all come down, there were crowds. They were the 
comforting voices that were around Martha and Mary. These were people, they wanted to do a good thing, but we've learned that these people, they weren't aligned with Jesus. They were actually in opposition to Jesus. And here's a key thing here, that in verse 20, Martha went out to meet him. Martha got away from the voices. It's interesting, isn't it, that the last time we see Jesus meeting with Mary and Martha in their home, Martha was the one working, doing all the work, trying to please Jesus and getting frustrated because Mary's just sitting there doing nothing at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus says to Martha, look, Martha, Mary has chosen the better thing. Fast forward to this situation. Martha's the first one to run and meet Jesus. Maybe the words that Jesus said to her about Mary choosing the better thing has done something in her heart. And that's actually a little bit of a redeeming moment for Martha. This story shows Martha in such a better light. And it's a good reason to read the whole of Scripture so we can get a better balanced view of things. But we need to get away from some voices. Some voices that don't align with Jesus so that we can really hear more clearly what Jesus is saying to us about who he really is. It's the people that we mostly surround ourselves, actually, that have the biggest influence on what we believe. And that's why here at church, we would always encourage you to come, come to church, mix with the family of God and surround yourself with people who can be a good influence over what you believe about Jesus. And a famous American uh, entrepreneur called Jim Ron, he, he once said, you are the average of the five people that you have spend the most time with. So a question for you today, church, is are there some crowds that you need to separate from so that you can hear more clearly what Jesus is saying? Is there maybe some activity that you need to come away from just for a while so you can just focus on Jesus and hear who he really is for a moment. These crowds, they weren't ready to hear what Jesus was, Jesus was saying. It was just a few weeks ago that they were trying to stone him and trying to kill him. They just weren't ready. But what's the one thing here in this moment that Jesus wants Martha to hear about himself? And this probably is the, is, is the pivot point of the whole story this is the, the message that he wants Martha to hear. And Martha, before you even see this miracle, this is the thing that I want you to hear and I want you to know. And in verse 25 and 26, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Martha, do you believe this? Now, it's really interesting that when Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, that the word life there is zoe. And here, here are some of the things that it means from the Vines Dictionary, that word life. It means the life-giving life of God. Jesus saying, I am the life-giving life of God. I am life as God has it. It's the life which the Father has in himself. 
It's the life which the Father gave to the incarnate Son in himself. It's the very life that raised Jesus from the dead. And Jesus wants Martha to understand and to see that resurrection isn't the act of raising Lazarus from the dead. The point, Martha, about what you are about to see is that resurrection is a person. Resurrection is Jesus. Resurrection is Jesus Christ himself. And that life is the life of God himself. So he's saying, Martha, if you believe in me, you will experience something way beyond that Lazarus is about to experience. You will be filled with the very life that the Father has in himself. And though, that, though your body may die one day, you will never experience death because the one who lives in you, Martha, is life itself. It is the life that will be within you every second and every moment of every day when you go to work, when you wake up. It's a life that you can never be separated from. You can't earn this life, Martha, through your own merit. It's a life that's given to you as a gift by Jesus alone. So Martha, do you believe this? And Jesus asks me, Jason, do you believe this? And he asks us as a church today, do you believe this? Well, Martha's response in verse 27 was this. Yes, Lord, she replied, I believe that you are the Messiah. You're the son of God who comes into the world. And my response, and I know it's your response, church, to this question, is that yes, Lord, I believe and I know that you are the resurrection and the life. And because I've put my faith in you, because we have put our faith in you, we experience your life in us every day. And that life is something that we cannot be separated from. It fuels you, it wakens you to a new life. And that's our response, isn't it, church, to the Lord's question. So today, let's really see who is living in us. The person living in you is Jesus. And the life that he is, is the very life of the Father himself. The third question here is, do you believe that he is compassionate towards you? The compassion of Christ is a wonderful theme, isn't it, that flows throughout every miracle that Jesus performs. In Psalm 145, verse 8, it says, The Lord is gracious and compassionate, that he's slow to anger and he's rich in love. And what's happened here is Martha has now returned back to the family and Mary has come up and she's weeping and the crowds have come with her and, and they're all weeping. And it says that when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her weeping, that he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And then it's the shortest verse in the Bible, isn't it? In verse 35, it says that Jesus he wept. And here we see a Jesus who just gets our pain. And he gets and he feels our upset. We see a Jesus here who even whilst he's carrying this bigger picture moment to perform a miracle and bring the kingdom of God in, to convince a nation that he is the Messiah, that he's also up close and personal 
that he just gets in the dirt and he's weeping with, with Mary. He's weeping with, with them all because he feels the pain. It says that he was troubled in spirit. The NLT version describes it like a compassion that's mixed with a deep anger. Do you believe that he's compassionate towards you today, church? Do you believe that he's compassionate towards your situation? Your default thought should be of your heavenly father, one of that he is compassionate, that he's rich in love. Not a default thought that he's angry or that he's judgmental towards you. Your first thing when you think of the Lord shouldn't be one of anger. It needs to be one that he's loving that he loves you and that he's compassionate towards your situation because he really connects with what you're going through today. And Jesus has this amazing way, doesn't he, of taking our upset and turning it upside down into a setup for resurrection. He has this wonderful, wonderful way of setting things up for us and I believe, church, that he's setting things up in your life today so that when you know that your answer has come, that you will know without a shadow of a doubt, this had to be Jesus. And don't you find that in your life, things have been set up, it's moved around, changed here, and it's just like you don't know what's going on, but suddenly, oh, oh Jesus just set it up the whole time, and he takes that setup, turns it around into a setup to, for your miracle so moved with deep compassion and righteous anger he now arrives at the tomb and this brings me to my third main point which is that this is a wonderful picture that our salvation is by Christ alone in verse 38 Jesus once more deeply moved he comes to the tomb it was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance take the stone away he said but Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time, there is a really bad odor. That's really nice English, isn't it? It's, it's going to stink, she's trying to say, because he's been there for four days. Jesus says to Martha, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So here's Lazarus, and you probably need to picture this. Here's Lazarus laid in a tomb, dead it says that his hands and his feet are bound that there's a cloth around his face there's a stone rolled in front of the tomb that's going to take more than one man to move there is absolutely no way that Lazarus can rescue himself maybe he could try going to church a little bit more Maybe he could try doing some good deeds. It's a ridiculous notion, isn't it? And I say something ridiculous to say it's ridiculous to think that Lazarus can save himself. And it's ridiculous for us to think that we could earn our own salvation. Spiritually, we were just like Lazarus. Ephesians 2.1, it says that as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. We were dead in our sins, just like Lazarus. We were buried in a tomb with a stone rolled in front of it. 
Your hands and feet were bound so you couldn't work for your salvation. Your face was covered so you just couldn't see God. You couldn't find God yourself because you were dead in sin. You needed Jesus to come and say over your life, take the stone away. You needed him to come and do that for you. You needed him to seek you out. So they took the stone away. And you can just imagine the crowd are thinking, what on earth is going on right here? They took the stone away. And then in the silence and the suspense of that moment, Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus just stops just for a moment, to just pray. And this isn't a prayer to raise Lazarus from the dead. It's, it's a moment, actually, to remind the crowd that he's calling God far. Jesus said, I'm saying this for the benefit of the people. He's calling their attention just before he performs this miracle. He's saying, look, listen, I'm calling him Father. I'm saying I am the Messiah. And he's just reminding them. He's saying, Father, it's for their benefit that they may believe right now that you sent me this miracle for Lazarus will become a defining moment for the nation of Israel and when he had said this Jesus called in a loud voice Lazarus come out if I could be a fly on the wall at any moment right now is the moment that I would choose I'd sit just on top of the tomb just looking out at Jesus I'd be looking at all the crowds around and I'm just thinking, what's going to happen? Please come out. And I'd know the Pharisees are thinking, please don't come out. And I'm thinking, just come out, please come out. Verse um, 44, it says, out comes Lazarus with his hands wrapped. And Jesus said, take the grave clothes off him. Do you remember the day, church, when just like Lazarus, you were also dead in your in your sin and the holy spirit put a seed of faith in your heart and you chose to believe in jesus christ and in that moment jesus came and he stood in front of your life and said take the stone away he called you by name and said come out come out of that grave and you heard that voice and you came running and you came running out of that grave and your hands they were unbound and now you can just worship God your feet they were loosened and now you can walk with him your eyes they were uncovered and now you can see him your mouth it was opened and now you can just praise your king and tell him that you love him with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your love Lord, we love you. It was completely a work of Jesus Christ that brought you out of that tomb while you're sitting here today with a brand new life in him. Don't you just love Jesus? I'd just like to call the worship team to come up at this point uh, as we try and bring things to an end. So today we've seen that Jesus is already working on your miracle. Jesus is already speaking life over your situation. We've seen that you are the one he loves and he is coming for you. We've asked, are there crowds that you need to leave so that you can hear a bit more clearly what Jesus is saying about himself? We've seen that he gets your upset and he gets right down in the dirt 
and he takes your upset and he turns it right round for a setup for resurrection. And we've seen just that we are saved by Christ alone. So I'd like to end this morning with just one final point. I know that having said all of that, there are many things in life that hit us and they can hit us hard and they can just keep hitting and just keep hitting. And you just need a miracle. You just need Jesus to come and just roll some stone away that's just been hammering you. Well, this miracle happened in a place called Bethany. And it's really interesting because Bethany means house of affliction. Have you got to the point in your life right now where there is some affliction and that affliction that you experience has just become now like the place that you just live. It's become the norm for you. It's happened for you so long that it's just become your life. It's an affliction. It's a place that you live in. And it's felt like Jesus is a long way away, even more than two days away. But the good news today is that you are the one he loves. The good news today is that Jesus has arrived at Bethany. Jesus has arrived at your Bethany. And I wonder why the Lord spoke to Pastor Nick and said, do this season now. Teach on the season of miracles right now. And I think it's because Jesus has arrived at Bethany. He's arrived at your Bethany, your house of affliction. So today, and maybe in this season, is your time for your miracle. So shall we stand together? And we're just going to worship together. And I think that as we worship together, maybe something might have spoke to you. Maybe you just need some miracle. Maybe today you just need to know that Jesus loves you. And I think we're just going to put out some possible responses as we worship this morning.